netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and welcome to this FX podcast. I'm Mike Seymour. Um, Jeff isn't with us this week. He's uh, actually uh, compositing like crazy, but I'm actually joined by our other co-founder, Mr. John Montgomery. How are you, John? Hey, how's it going, my friend? Happy to be taking part in the podcast once again. Yeah, we've got a great interview today with Harm Peter Dyker. Now, he is, um, well, he, he's, Harm Peter is his, is his correct name, but we're, I'm going to call him HP because everybody does. Um, he's somebody that we should have had on a long time ago here at FX Guide. Uh, his career has been incredible. Actually, as an undergrad, like kind of before he even got his PhD, he was working at ICT. So um, it's his face. It was one of the first faces used for the original Light Stage 1. Uh, but then his career spanned the Matrix films, Mannix. Um, he ended up at Autodesk as a rendering uh, product manager. Uh, he also um, has done a bunch of stuff with Epic most recently that was just presented just the other day at uh, GDC. And uh, we even profiled him last year at, uh, at SIGGRAPH 2015 in, um, at DigiPro. Yeah, if you check out the FX Guide and our Seagraph Day One coverage, we have uh, information about him and uh, his uh, talking about the Aces color space, which is of course a, a big factor and um, firmed up now actually in the industry. And actually, people are using that, and actually, we're teaching it here uh, over to FX PhD as well as part of our curriculum. Yeah, we, we um, last year covered his presentation, which was terrific. Um, that you know spanned Aces and in particular the Aces CG workflow, and he's one of the uh, like signatories on the paper that uh, sort of presented that on behalf of the academy, but you know that would be reason enough to talk to him. Um, but uh, of course, he's done like an amazing bunch of other stuff. But John, um, while I've got you, and I wanted to talk about that, you mentioned FX PhD, and uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss the new structuring of FX PhD, because of course I've covered the stuff that HP's done on uh, the Aces Color Workflow in my background fundamentals, but we also have a bunch of other courses specifically on uh, color workflow. Now, most of that is probably not a surprise to people that are listening because, you know, you'd know that over the last 10 years, that's the kind of stuff we do at FXPHD. But what has caught a few people off uh, guard is our terrific move to restructuring how people can get access to that decade of material. Yeah, and it's been a uh, you know a while in coming. You know, we did start it ten years ago, as you mentioned. In fact, it is our ten year anniversary uh, here in April of our launch, which is pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, how time flies. Um, but yeah, what we decided to do with FXPC is kind of work to make it more approachable for people. Um, obviously, it has really worked great for us over the years. But uh, for many people, um, one of the root things I think didn't work out for many people is actually the term structure at our site, where we had four terms a year, which is actually really cool. We had launched twelve new classes. People join and watch them. Um, but now what we've done is kind of opened it up and for you know a low monthly fee starting at $79 or $99 for a premium option, you get full access to every single course we have on offer at FXPHD that you can watch in streaming. Um, right now we have no, uh, over 90 courses on offer and what we're going to be doing is adding more and more over time. But basically what this allows you to do is jump in anytime. The courses are all done and completed. You can watch at your pace and your leisure. Um, 
Um, and as I said, over time, we'll be bringing in more courses from our archives. As you mentioned, we've done a ton of courses over the year, and we'll be rolling those out, as well as new courses uh, as part of the curriculum. And, and again, I think this idea of the price point, this lack of term, which is always, Mike, a little bit hard to explain to people who've never been an FX PhD before, um, I think it's going to be a lot of interest to, to many people now. Yeah, I'm enthusiastic about it because this ACES color workflow is a good example, though this is just one of many topics I'm going to talk <laughs> right. to HP about. But what used to happen is that, you know, someone would say to me, I heard the podcast, you were discussing ACES, and how do I learn more about that? And I'd say, well, you'd have to join for a semester or term at FX PhD. And they well, I don't really kind of want to learn learn all of that sort of stuff right now. I'm kind of, I just want this bit. And I'd be, well, we don't really have just this bit. Or we'd be rolling out something and they'd say, well, I'm, I need this like by next week. And I said, well, it's not actually available all immediately for download, but if you hang in there, you can get there after three months, um, which I, I will say actually the whole three-month term worked really well, especially um, okay. you know, when, we, when we started the FX PhD. But everything evolves and nothing uh, is, uh, is truer than that. And so, yeah, having this whole new uh, effectively all-you-can-eat um, uh, option that requires no locked in long-term contracts, no, you know, um, uh, long commitments, but, you know, I guess it's just a, the way, the, the place that people are at with the internet. Um, I think the other thing, John, is of course people have a lot more bandwidth these days, so they can actually afford to download 10 classes for a whole course or whatever it is, where back in the day, no one would sort of think of downloading when we started that much content in one whack. No, exactly. And that's a lot of moving the streaming model. And of course, we do have the download option, but streaming model allows people to watch it on the fly, um, download if they want, and check in and out of courses. And again, sample just basically everything that we have. And I think an important, another important consideration, Mike, before we dive into the podcast, just before we close out here too, is it's important to note that nothing's really changing in the quality of the content or the types of courses we're doing or the profs. You know, we're not bringing in a whole new slate of people uh, for that. It's kind of the same old high-level content that we've always had at FXPHD just present a different form and more affordable. In fact, that monthly membership is cheaper than just buying a single one-off course that we used to have for sale in the store. So that's kind of what a big deal it is for both us and uh, people who might be listening. You know, I was talking to the Foundry about something and we worked out that we have more Nuke courses than anyone else in the world, including, I think, the Foundry. <laughs> just as an example. <laughs> Um, anyway, so I want to swing now to our uh, interview with uh, HP. So um, to do that, I also want to just uh, plug one other quick thing, which is uh, maybe of certainly interest to our European listeners. Um, HP is going to be uh, also speaking at FMX, as I am. So if you are um, interested in uh, attending FMX and you need a little bit of a hint, a push, a shove, a uh, whatever to get over the line. Um, April 26 to 29 in Stuttgart, FMX is just a cracker of a conference. John, I have to confess, you were so much more into FMX before I was. I'm a late convert compared to you, but man, what a what a great uh, event it is. I was actually checking out frequent flyer flights to it today <laughs> to see if it's something I might be able to do. So anyway, um, yeah, it will, uh, it's a great conference and uh, definitely if you're in Europe, check it out. 
Yeah. So the guys are going to be uh, talking at the virtual humans uh, presentation, which is on the Thursday, but there's a lot of great stuff uh, going there and um, great stuff from Smoke and Mirror, stuff on Deadpool, The Martian, um, just a ton of stuff. So uh, check all of that out over at uh, fmx.de because it's a German site. Um, if you want to uh, check out what they're doing. Um, as I say, I'm, I'm just one of the people speaking and I'm really looking forward to it. I, we were there last year. It was a cracker. But uh, we're going to have more stuff on FMX and uh, more coverage from there. But I wanted to flag that because uh, HP is so interesting. And I've had the sort of good fortune, of course, of seeing what he's going to be presenting in terms of um, incredible uh, work. Um, actually, it's not just him. It's uh, him and a bunch of guys from Epic. Uh, so really, really amazing work. And if you didn't see the stuff that they presented at uh GDC. Uh, we have a story up on that also at, uh, at FX Guy. But now let's cross to my interview recorded earlier uh, with HP. HP, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So I just feel really bad we haven't had you on FX Guide before now. And uh, somebody, a good friend of ours, uh, sort of kicked me over it. And I thought he's absolutely right. Um, your career is uh, one that I keep on bumping into different parts of it. So it's incredible. I, I would happily have you on the show just to talk about your work with uh, ACES CG Workflow. Um, but that is just like a tiny part of the stuff that you've been up to. Where are you at currently? Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm actually, I'm consulting, working with, uh, a number of customers in the game space, like Epic Games, uh, and in the visual effects and film space, uh, like the Academy and, and other clients here in uh, in London, California. So let's just touch on Aces before we go any further, because um, I think a lot of the stuff we're going to discuss is probably more around uh, stuff that uh, is either that real time game stuff that you just mentioned or or your earlier uh, work. But the Aces stuff is uh, really remarkable insofar as not only is ACES a terrific um, model for abstracting a level of uh, independence from a particular sort of sensor pipeline and uh, having a good space to work in, but you were involved in particular in kind of taking what I see as an almost theoretical perfect model and turning it into a practical model. It's the difference, you know, I use the analogy, um, ACES and ACES CG is really almost to me like floating point and half float that is open EXR. One of them is what you would discuss in principle. The other one is what you actually use. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, I think it's a fair way to introduce people to the, uh, to the concepts. Um, yeah, so I, I became involved uh, more directly with ACES uh, about two years ago at this point. Um, so as as the project had gotten to a point where uh, you know it, it the academy team, uh, Andy Maltz, Ray Feeney, uh, Jim Houston wanted to you know bring it to market in a more serious way. Um, I left Autodesk uh, formerly as the product manager there uh, for my lighting and rendering team, and so this was a great. Uh, follow-on, you know, sort of project, sort of focusing on the productization of ACES. Um, and, you know, in, it couldn't have been a better combination of uh, sort of, you know, the need and uh, my interests. Uh, I've been working, you know, with HDR, um, you know, techniques and technology since being in, in the lab with uh, Paul DeBevick at Berkeley uh, and then implementing MCHDR and, and then, you know, seeing that technology through into uh, production on the Matrix sequels and using it for the virtual humans, the virtual Keanu Reeves and, and Hugo Weaving. Uh, and since that time, and since the advent of technologies like OpenEXR, OpenColorIO, um, there had been a number of, uh, you know, a number of people have observed that uh, the uh, sort of the HDR space lacked, lacked some standards or lacked some definitions. Uh, you know, there was enough of a question of getting people to, uh, sort of understand and accept, you know, what linear floating point, uh, you know, data means in the context of lighting and rendering. Um, 
you know, and then there was, you know, beyond that, there was a question of, okay, great. This is, you know, this light is now value 10. What does that mean? And it's, you know, it's RGB values are whatever they might be. What does that actually mean? Uh, so I think that, you know, the, the Academy, uh, committee the you know, the ACEs, uh, committee that have been working long and hard for many years to answer those questions and to formalize the answers to those questions, uh, had you know, really gotten to a good point. And so, um, when I came in, the focus was on, um, uh, in many ways sort of clarifying, uh, the message about what was served in the project and what was out, uh, and what, you know, what problems it solved for the various, the various people that would be using ACEs. Um, and, you know, as it turns out, especially, you know, there's the, the advent of, or the sort of increased dynamic range of camera sensors, uh, and now pretty directly coupled with an, a growing, um, growing intensity, growing dynamic range from TVs and coupling that with coupling that with the, um, you know, the full digitization of production floating point and HDR techniques really are going from capture all the way through to display. Uh, so there's really no, you know, no better time for, or no time where the need for a standard for the space was more clear. I mean, I must admit, I find it really annoying that the, the the monitor manufacturers, as it were, have been using the term HDR because uh, HDR seems to get used, you know, nowadays at a drop of a hat. I mean, the original HDR seemed, you know, to be revolutionary enough when we first hit it back in the day that it was coming out with like HDR shop out of um, ICT and we were just uh-huh. compressing um, – a lot of uh, still images at that stage into one image that had this higher dynamic range. Um, and then, you know, along the way, HDR seems to be grabbed by just about everybody to mean everything. Um, and now, of course, the you know, you go to a shop and uh, it's possible that they might have a special display in the corner talking about HDR. I, I find it, for, for people that aren't so familiar, it's kind of confusing. Um, but generally speaking, like the, the idea of this expanded latitude uh, remains constant throughout all of that. Um, it's just the specifics of what we're talking about. You know, in some respects, you talk to a photographer and they think you're talking about tone mapping. Um, somebody else thinks you're talking about something else. Um, but the, the, the monitor drive at the moment does seem to be breathtakingly interesting to me because the images actually look better. In other words, if you look at a Dolby Vision set, the pictures look better. And that doesn't necessarily necessarily mean that I have to have an ACES uh, CG workflow, but certainly ACES CG facilitates that for many people uh, involved in production, doesn't it? It absolutely does. So you know, there's there's two big aspects of ACES CG as a space that are interesting to people in in the post production and production world. You know, one is the the linear floating point nature, uh, and the other is the relatively wide gamut, right? Rec twenty twenty plus some. Um, so the, you know, the linear aspect and the, the fact that it is floating point can represent values well above one, uh, has tremendous value independent of, uh, the gamut. The, the challenge that we've run into is that many people have tried to build systems around, you know, pure floating point representations with sort of with little, little else in the way of information about, uh, the data sets. And, um, you know, you run into problems, uh, different displays have different gamuts, different cameras have different gamuts. Um, you know, by and large, the renderers will use whatever gamut you want, or you know, just assumed will just assume to be in whatever gamut you want. Uh, but having a formalization uh, as the academy presented with uh, you know with the AP one gamut that is the embedded in ACG or embodied in ACG CG um, it sort of answers answers that question. You know, I'm getting this data. 
what you know what should it look like on this monitor be it a be it a Dolby HDR display or a you know traditional Rec 709 uh, TV I think there's just there's a lot of ambiguity um, in particular when you're intercutting you know material from from different sources from different cameras or different film stocks well let me just also just jump to today and congratulate you on the reception to the work that you've been doing in the games industry um, because uh, and there's a, obviously a thread that are going to connect all these things up. But at first glance, it seems completely different, right? One of these things is color space we've just been discussing. The next thing is, oh, my gosh, you go, were involved in this amazing live uh, puppeteering version of a remarkably uh, believable-looking render of a digital human. Um, but, you know, the actress, in this case the video editor uh, from the company that was uh, Ninja Theory behind it, you know, is standing off stage. But literally uh, you've got an actress puppeteering um, a game quality uh, uh, asset up on the stage at GDC. Firstly, did you have any doubt that that was going to come off? Because it came together pretty quickly, didn't it? <laughs> uh, yes and yes. <laughs> Um, the, the project was a great collaboration between a lot of, uh, well, for, for a single character in a single environment, I'd say it was a collaboration between a lot of different, uh, companies. There was, um, th- you know, uh, first and foremost, Ninja Theory in the UK, uh, Epic in the U S but then, uh, you know, there's three lateral that involved in the scanning. There was like Kinema, there was Cubic Motion. Um, I was involved as a consultant. There were a lot of different people, um, you know, touching every aspect of the Senua character. Um, and it, it's, it was great to see it come to fruition on the GDC stage. Um, there was, there was work going into that until, you know, the very, very last minute. Um, I think as you've, you've certainly seen, uh, with digital characters, you know, things can feel good one day and then you see them in a different light or in a different context and you realize there's, there's work to do. So um, I was very, very happy to be involved in, in that project and uh, to contribute. So tell me know, a little bit about your my, specific my role on, yeah. uh, on that. Like what was the – where were you specifically consulting and helping out? Because we've got a story on the overall thing on FX Guide, but just to, for, so people understand. Right. So, um, so I've been working with uh, Epic for about the last, last six months. Um, you know, part of the role is uh, working remote and adding features directly into the engine. Uh, so building a new eye material, um, uh, adding a new cloth shading model, uh, you know, working with their, um, with their engineers to make sure that that all works. Uh, you know, Brian Karras has been uh, driving a lot of their physically based rendering and, um, and overall, you know, lighting and shading techniques. Um, and so it's been really great to, you know, work with him directly on that. Um, so the, you know, part of the work is adding features like those, um, another feature to not to discount is a pipeline for, um, displaying on HDR, uh, TVs and, and monitors. And then, so coupled with adding features, um, I've actually then been going to, um, going to North Carolina, going to the Epic offices to, um, to help with and, and guide production as needed. Um, so on the, the Paragon trailer ended up, um, uh, well, uh, lighting, lighting a fair number of shots and really sort of helping with some of the look dev on, um, the Ninja theory, uh, Hellblade piece. Um, I ended up uh, effectively supervising the look dev. So working, working with the Ninja theory guys to, uh, to bring in, uh, bring their assets into unreal, you know, really understand their, their look dev targets, uh, working with um, 
uh, with Vaughn from Three, Three Lateral, working with Ninja Theory, working with artists within Epic to uh, to both sort of assess the look dev, you know, make a plan to go forward, and then um, and then you know continue the development. So, so part now this, of that this, was I was going to say this isn't oh, obviously your first you know gaming thing because you, you were a CG supervisor at EA right in uh, in the middle of that's the right. yeah. 2000s but I, I'll get to that but you sort of most you mentioned before you were obviously at uh, Autodesk and um, you had a couple of positions there I know but you sort of came in from a sort of an, a mental images kind of standpoint you certainly were the the product manager for the rendering um, stuff in um, in Maya um, can you sort of philosophically talk to me for a second leaving aside clearly the issues to do with um the sort of the principles of it. I mean, you know, you're not obviously rendering in a game engine with the same renderer that you render a, uh, you know, feature film. Like it's completely a different renderer. But how similar are the skill sets, the principles, and how much are they sort of specific uh, when you're dealing with the problem of having to get it rendered in real time at such high uh, sort of bandwidth uh, limitations? You know, I think it's really interesting to see to have been at EA at this point uh, ten years ago, um, and to have worked on what was meant to be a you know a digital character-driven game. It was a project uh, subtitled, or you know, um, the working title LMNO that uh, was never released, but it was very much you know a character-driven game. And I probably you know shouldn't say more than that, but <laughs> um, you know, at the time there were. There were there was a lot of great initial work going into how to translate, you know, some of the subsurface scattering techniques that we had developed on the Matrix uh, into real time, and so you had texture-based diffusion approaches. Um, you know, fast forward to today, and you you have that still as a widely used technique, but you also uh, have the technique used at uh, used in Unreal, which is a screen-based diffusion. Um, so, uh, you know, there's there were already. At that time, when I was at EA, there was already a, a fair amount of research going into just how those how the techniques could be um, you know could be ported over and and what techniques could be taken from games and brought back to uh, to the visual effects space. Um, you know, the the underlying principles, especially with with the advent of you know floating support and floating point support and hardware, which is ancient news at this point, but is it was a fundamental to unlocking that uh, that overlap. You know, if if we had remained in a you know, fixed point space in in lighting and rendering on GPUs, it would be it would be a never ending challenge. Uh, so, so to, if I was if I was talking techniques. if I was talking to you in like uh, I don't know um, you know middle or end of 2012 as and you had a an Autodesk hat on and we we're talking about rendering, I'd be all about physically based uh, physically plausible based shaders and lighting. Um, unidirectional, bidirectional um, path tracing, you know, issues to do with uh, just going mm-hmm. more and more towards simulating reality because that's the thing that people want. And the less hacks you have, the better. It, it's, it reduces the buttons, as it were, that you can play with, but by the same token, it tends to get you a more believable result. And that would be all the discussion I'd be having with you. And now in the game world, some of that's all true, but some of it's also like you can – you know, come up with the greatest theory in the world, Mike, but if you don't get this sucker rendering in game time, uh, you know, it's it's not going to fly. I'm just wondering, like, do, am I going to have that same, dis- if, I, if you were, a, you know, just looking forward, you know, crystal ball, six, seven years now, you were at Epic again, and we're having this conversation six, seven years from now, would we be having the same discussion because it's going to be exactly all of that in games or is it moving to all of that or is it never going to be quite the same thing? 
Um, as with any good question, the answer is yes and no. Um, so in, if you talked to me uh, when I was on our desk, the, one of the big things you would have heard was that interactivity is important. Uh, so physical realism and the path towards, you know, exact simulation of, uh, exact simulation of light is, is an absolutely worthy, worthy goal. And as you've you know, seen with the release, recent release of, uh, Zootopia and the, the beautiful images that Hyperion created, you know, with 15 to, to 20 bounces, you know, there's, there's absolute value and, um, you know, to the, to the user and, and the sort of the consumer of content to have that level of realism. Now, there's a question of in the content creation process, are you best served by, you know, by a result that takes a very, very long time to get to, uh, but is sort of perfect given the parameters that you established? Or are you best served by a result that is real time, but maybe an approximation? And of course, this is all set up to say that, you know, the answer is neither. Ideally, you would have a system that um, you know, allows you to have an interactive real-time editing experience but then but is a faithful preview of the sort of offline quote-unquote perfect result um so that that's been that one of my observations about working both in the visual effects and the real-time space uh is that the interactivity uh and the sort of the workflow working with a real-time engine is transformative uh, again it, it feels you know Funny, funny to say it's a bit, you know, it always it feels like you just basically have to be overstating something if you even use the word transformative, but, uh, but it is, um, working on Paragon, working on the, um, the Ninja Theory piece over the last couple of months has just been remarkable how, uh, how many more creative iterations, uh, you're able to, um, get through and how much you're able to work with you know, one, one, uh, relatively small group is able to work. Um, across departments and, and sort of across levels of production, um, I think a lot of in a lot of ways the the very slow nature of simulations and rendering and uh, you know export processes that we that are all too common in you know visual effects tends to slow the process down and really get in the way of you know what is fundamentally meant to be a you know creative process. Um, so. Long term, I I would you know what I would love to see, and I think this the the killer product is a an element that combines those two. So obviously, the thing that just got me completely excited was that demo was a face, and faces are the holy grail. It's a the thing we film when we just do live action, right? Like you you do a drama, you're going to have lots of faces. It's all about the faces. People say it's all about the story, but nearly all the story gets played out with faces. And so in the digital world, um, of course, you know, it's the other yeah. thing that really matters. So, and then you, you said yourself earlier that you were doing, um, you know, stuff way back with, um, the matrix and with, you know, uh, the characters back then and the faces back then. And so it'd be easy to say, oh, well, your career is one of digital characters, but in the middle here, before you did this rendering stuff with Autodesk, you were at digital domain. And I assumed that you were doing face pipelines then, but in fact, I think if I'm right in my research, when you were at Digital Domain, you were doing destruction pipelines. Is that correct? Um, well, so I uh, I was always on the lighting and rendering side, uh, but I worked on uh, sort of two big projects there, and, and actually one one low experiment in the middle, which we should should touch on. Um, I think we can talk about. But uh, the first project was Speed Racer, so that was all about rendering cars and hard surfaces. Um, and cranking up saturation wherever we could. Yep. Uh, and the second one was, uh, was 2012, which was about destroying Los Angeles. 
Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, I wouldn't say that those, uh, were a sort of a direct follow on to the, the previous work, uh, in a sort of philosophical sense. Um, but they, they touched on problems that I think are actually, uh, you know, endemic to, uh, production, just no matter, no matter what you're doing, if it's purely digital humans or, uh, if you're doing, you know, full, um, you know, full CG animations, the, uh, you know, the challenges of representing large numbers of assets and, uh, and many, many variations of those, uh, are, you know, solving those problems help, help serve regardless of where, uh, you know, what problem you're trying to solve next. But I mean, there are a lot of issues in destruction pipelines, finite element analysis, a bunch of stuff like that, that doesn't tend to be the stuff that we tend to sort of think of when we're thinking of faces and rigging and subsurface scattering and stuff. Um, and of course, of course your career is going to be varied, but, um, but yeah, so I wasn't, I wasn't specifically working on the effects that was, there was a whole, you know, DD is, is famous yeah. for its effects team and they did a great job on that. Um, I was overseeing the, the lighting team and also the lighting looked of, and then the pipeline right. uh, team. So, you know, the challenge we had there was, uh, was really getting data from effectively layout and initial animation Maya, um, into, Houdini for effects and then back to Maya and through into RenderMan. Um, not to mention look dev modeling and everything else that happens before the actual shot creation. Uh, and so there, there had not been basically a, a show where every single asset and had been, you know, touched by Houdini in a shot and then brought back into Maya and then gone through RenderMan. Uh, and I don't think there had been a show where there were, uh, shots with, you know, 5,000 plus assets in a single frame. Uh, that had all had to be touched. So there was the challenge. The biggest challenge there was about the kind of the volume and the the management. Um, and then you know there was the couple challenge of the uh, sort of photorealism, et cetera, uh, coming out of RenderMan uh, at that time. So we touched on Mannix and uh, the stuff with Escape. But if we go back even before that, the first time I sort of was familiar. Well, not, I, I wouldn't even say familiar. The first time I kind of noticed you was because your face uh, was being displayed with your eyes shut with a couple of you know spherical balls beside it as part of a original ICT uh, paper. So, so when I say your career has been around faces, I mean ICT at USC is you know one of a very small handful of leading research facilities in the world that have been at the forefront of uh, trying to solve human reflectance and, and human. Um, uh, you know, reproduction and sampling. So that's right. You started there. Was that like your first? Because you look a little younger in those photos <laughs> from sixteen <laughs> years ago. Yeah, I think I look a lot younger. Uh, so that was actually that work um, was actually done at Berkeley um, in uh, in the graphics lab where uh, Paul DeBevic and Tim Hawkins were doing uh, postdoctorate uh, research. So I was in an undergraduate researcher and that's where I, um, so I wrote MCHDR, which was the predecessor, or, uh, sorry, precursor to, um, HDR shop, um, worked with, uh, Paul, Tim, another good friend of mine, uh, Wesley Sorokin, who's now a creative director at the mill on Fiat Lux. Um, and then we, uh, worked on the, the first light stage paper. So that included, you know, going to Home Depot and <laughs> buying the Redwood, uh, you know, putting it all together and putting together a uh, pretty interesting scheme that mostly involved a, an extension cord to, to move the whole thing. <laughs> we, we, yes, um, and I, I think on that first paper also Mark Sager was there, who of course ended up at Weta and did uh, stuff with um, uh, you know, very pivotal work there uh, with their facts-based uh, work on uh, Gollum and stuff. And uh, That's right. 
And yeah. this, this, if I just turn to that SIGGRAPH 2000 kind of uh, light stage one thing, um, I, I had assumed by that stage that you'd moved to USC, but you're saying that that was stuff from prior to that up at Berkeley? Yeah, that was at Berkeley. I believe uh, before that SIGGRAPH is when uh, Paul moved to USC. Um, Paul and Tim, uh, Tim Hawkins, also yep. now at Ortoy, uh, moved to USC. I believe before that SIGGRAPH. Um, before that SIGGRAPH, I took a job with Mannix to begin working on the Matrix sequels. Um, and and so that original Light Stage 1, which I've, we, we here at FX Guide talked to Paul about before, which was, you know, obviously the end of what must have been 99. Um, you, you weren't joking. Like it was literally $1,000 from Home Depot in terms of building a wooden, what looks like a gallows really. <laughs> to, yeah, yeah. To very slowly scan by today's standards uh, with a 30-foot power cord uh, and some sort of lazy Susan uh, kind of configuration. Um, yeah, you can actually, you can see, I, I believe in the paper, the photos that are still on the on Paul's site, you can see the people uh, Tim and, and Chris Chu uh, uh, pulling the extension cord to, to move the uh, the arms. So. Yeah, it's like a giant top with a cord that you pull and this arm swings around. Now, it actually swings around you in this particular case, right? Because you were the guy yes. having to sit there very, very patiently for quite a long time because, of course, um, the whole idea was that you moved the array around somebody and so you sort of additively got the data as opposed to a modern day light stage we think of as being a sphere and in an instant effectively gets the data. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was quite a process. So I, I, I believe that among the research group, I was the one who could sit still <laughs> the longest, which may, may be the sole reason I was, uh, you know, won the, won the light stage lottery as it were. Um, but it, uh, it worked out and it, you know, I think the paper, Paper was well received, and oh, yeah. I think there, there was a, a period from I think 2004 to 2009 or so, uh, where if you went on Google Images and just typed in "face," my face was like <laughs> four of the top ten images. Um, but as you said, you went from Berkeley, not down to USC. You actually went uh, onto the Matrix. So that must have been a heady time because the work that because uh, it was almost like. The Matrix was under the radar. We can't imagine it now, but when it was in its early days, the Matrix wasn't, as it's now, of course, a pivotal moment in the sort of cinematic uh, R&D history. It was some unknown guys doing a sort of wacky thing that had a couple of wacky things in it, uh, bullet time, like a whole bunch of stuff. It must have been an amazing time to have been working in the industry and doing that. It was. I, I mean, I think there it's interesting to look at uh, the sort of the industry now versus at that time, there was definitely, I think now people, people are asking the same questions, but for sort of different reasons, right? The question is always, you know, how are we going to do this? Um, now the answer to that is largely off the shelf solutions and, you know, kind of scaling at that time it was, you know, really how are we going to do this? And <laughs> the answer was coming up with coming up with techniques. Um, so it was, uh, it was very, it was a great environment. Um, you know, Kim Library, the current CTO of, um, of Epic Games was the visual effects supervisor for Mannix. Uh, he and a number of other people, uh, he, he was one of seven people that interviewed me and, and eventually brought me in. But, um, the people that have, uh, the people were, that were in that group have gone on to great things. And so for me, having that as a first job out of school was uh, incredibly lucky, um, the, the facial capture stuff that was done back, uh, I think then probably been for the second film, um, where uh, you were setting up the HD cameras on their, on their end to try and get stuff, came from, as I understand it, from Kim explaining it to us on an earlier 
podcast, it came from John Gator saying, I wanted to just sort of do universal capture of a space and someone like Kim saying, hmm, let's just start with a face first and we'll work our way to the entire uh, set next. Now, the reason I bring that up is that, of course, John is now up at ILM uh, with Rob doing the ILM XLab stuff, which is amazing. And I think you've been consulting with them as well, right? So this is like a, 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 a real continuum in your career. That's right. Yep. Yes. Yeah. So I've been been working with many of those people since uh, since those projects. You know, I think it's it's a testament to you know people's uh, well uh, to my at least enjoyment with working with them, but also uh, I think to those to John and, and Kim and uh, you know pursuing pursuing the hard problems. Uh, yeah, and in fact, uh, Kim really kicked off a lot of that work at ILM before he moved from ILM to uh, to Epic, and so there's a lot of um, a lot of crossover there. It, it is, I guess to use a cliche, it's a small industry in some respects. Absolutely. It is. Um, you know, and the hard problems remain hard problems. So, uh, as long as you can find the right context, the right movie or right project to work on those, I think you'll, you'll find the same people interested. So let me finish up by asking you two questions. Firstly, if you were to go back and talk to yourself 16 years ago, um, when you first hit the matrix, having come down from Berkeley, do you think we're as far along in our ability to produce realistic humans as you would have anticipated if I'd asked you then, where would we be in 15 years? Has it moved at a pace that you expected, faster, slower? Uh, I'd say the level of realism feels like it's progressed as I as I would have guess being fairly naive, uh, you know, just out of school at the time. But, uh, I'd say that the, the thing that I'm sort of continually surprised by is the, uh, the slowness of the process, uh, the effort required, you know, not in just the initial capture, which is its own, its own, you know, uh, intense process, but then also the massaging of the data and the sort of the actual production, um, the techniques have continued to grow people's understanding of, of skin and hair and eyes uh, cloth, you know, everything connected with the digital human has, has continued to progress. But the process of using those techniques to produce a coherent final result continues to be extremely intensive. It, for me, it seemed like we would be further along until I got older and understood that kind of the human brain processes faces quite distinctly from a laptop or a book insofar as we have, you know, like actual evolved kind of parts of the brain that deal with faces because they're so pivotal to everything that we do. And so consequently, you're, you're not just tackling a subject, like, can I make a realistic car? You're tackling the subject, which is the sort of the essence of when you're born and how a baby needs to find and identify its own mother's face to be part of a, you know, a, uh, a continuum of, uh, of evolutionary, um, you know, biology. It just has to be solved at a, at a level beyond what I need to do to produce something that may look like a realistic car in a commercial. That being said, <laughs> yes. if that's the context we're in, we're, we're, we're agreeing that it's like, you know, it's a special case and it's really hard for those reasons and it's so nuanced. Uh, do you think that um, we are, like if you look forward 10 years, 10, 15 years, um, do you think we're like accelerating the pace? Is it plateauing? Um, where are we at and can we sort of extrapolate? It's always dangerous to do that, but can we extrapolate where we, we expect things to go with things like, um, you know, unreal engines and, uh, and real time stuff. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, it feels to me, so I guess one to sort of touch on your, your past response or your previous response. I don't think we're, um, I don't think our techniques are finished. I don't, I don't think we're at the point of, 
a digital human, um, you know, being a sort of a perfect result in any particular instance. I think what we have found is, you know, with enough effort and given enough constraints, we can fool audiences. Um, you know, Benjamin Button is a great example, you know, given some, I'd say, you know, specific lighting and also a ton of, a ton of talent and a ton of techniques brought together, you know, for a specific instance, I'd say that that, that worked. And looking back, it, it may not feel like it holds up as much now, but certainly at the time uh, it did. Going forward 10 years, it feels, my guess is that we will have found more, more instances and more uh, cases where we can say that we have successfully fooled people into believing a digital human. Uh, but will the general problem be solved? I, I think almost certainly not, given, given the exact reasoning uh, you just outlined, that the human visual system, everything about uh, you know, all, all the parts of our brain dedicated to social interaction mean that we are you know, incredibly attuned to every last detail of a, a human face and uh, you know, human face and human motion. So um, I, don't think, I don't think we'll be at a, a fully autonomous digital human um, in 10 years. I, I'd love to be proven wrong, but I, I do think we'll be the human brain will continue to be an incredibly discriminating, uh, you know, tester. So it's been so great talking to you. And the only last thing I want to do is just flag the fact that uh, hopefully we're going to have you at FMX in Germany, uh, in April, which will be terrific. Yeah. Thank you. I, I really do hope to make it. Um, it's a great conference and certainly if you're anywhere near the area, I, I encourage everyone to, to attend. Um, so hopefully we'll have you and uh, other people from Epic being able to uh, to run through in sort of some more detail uh, the stuff from the uh, the real time uh, Ninja Theory demo at GDC that uh, that Epic put on. As you said, it was a very much a collaborative effort. But um, I am really interested to to drill down if we can and hear from you on uh, some of the specifics because you you guys are quite modest in uh, in you know pulling it together in a short amount of time. It was an astonishing feat um, and really some interesting work that uh, came from that. And of course the uh, Paragon stuff that uh, that preceded it. So we're all looking forward to that. Great. Well, I hope not to disappoint then. <laughs> Thanks so much. And we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Well, that was really great, Mike. You know, and you know, I mean, what's what's really great about podcasts like this, finding someone who can talk about things so eloquently and put it in such a uh, great way. Um, you didn't really have to force anything out of him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, he's uh, definitely somebody that's worth uh, hearing. And he's just a really nice guy. And as I said, that's yeah. uh, FMX, where he's talking next, uh, April 26th to 29th, if you want to check it out. Um, but yeah, it's been good uh, catching up with you, John, as well. And uh, thanks so much to everyone that's been listening. Um, lots of stuff happening over at the site, lots of stuff coming up uh, as we hit into what is summer blockbuster season in the US of A. Woo-hoo. So it should be good. Uh, but all that and more coming up, including we're going to have a uh, deep and, um, gosh, dare I say it, semi-serious look at Superman versus Batman uh, but all that coming up uh, in the uh, <laughs> VFX show podcast and other things um, but for now on behalf of Jeff John and myself thanks so much guys for listening we really appreciate it see ya please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts you can reach us by clicking the contact us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.